Hello and welcome to Now Here's a Thing, the latest laid-back podcast crafted by me, Tracy Jones, and me, Heather Noble. Yes, let's do that thing. That that thing, that podcast thing. That podcast thing, yeah. Let's do it. Shall I tell you about this thing? Go on. That I found. I have an elderly uncle who lives in the middle of nowhere in Powys. And I went to visit him last week. And he was talking about the olden days. That's, you know, that's kind of what he talks about. But he mentioned um, there's a field behind his house. And he was describing something to me and he talked about the field beyond the, the field. And, um, and I said, what did, what did you say? And he said, um, uh, the Landy, it's the Landy Moors. I said, oh, the Landy Moors? The Landy Moors. I said, sorry? He said, oh, yeah. He said, um, he said, oh, there's, there's all sorts of field names around here. Um, there's the Beesums. Beesums, um, aren't they like witches' brooms? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, that's my son phoning me. Oh, is it? Okay. I just Take the call, yeah. Yeah. Hello? Yes, they're in the uh, tins cupboard. Where the katsu sauce is. Yeah. I'm just recording a podcast, by the way. You got them. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Where are the panko breadcrumbs? Oh, that seems to be cooking. Is yeah. cooking? Uh, katsu. Katsu chicken. Nice. Right, so Beesum is a witch's broom, yes. Yeah, Beesum's a witch's broom. Um, but there's a field to the left of the old school that's called the Beesums. Okay. Then I, then he said, oh, yeah, then there's uh, we've got Crosser Nashes. Wow. Um, the Rise, that's a bit boring, isn't it? Is it? Has it got an upward slope? Yeah. Uh, I suppose, yeah. Jerbies. Wow, these are really... Unusual names, and it got me so also around where he lives. So there's a house called Mouldy Farthing. Okay. There's a house called Hanging's Bank. Hanging's Bank. Hanging's. Sinister. Yes. Um, so it got me thinking about field. Oh, he said in that hill over there, it's called Eric. Eric. I was like, well, this is weird, isn't it? Are you sure he wasn't uh, winding you up? No, no, he wasn't. No, because I've heard my mum mention the Beesums before. So I decided to do a little bit of research because we sort of know certain things about towns and villages yeah. and, you know, what they mean. But I'd never really thought about... You hear, like, 10-acre field and 5-acre yeah. field. Do you and... think you lose that as well as you build new estates and they give them some generic name based on royal palaces or something? You lose that local... Name well, I for think, an area or a street or a house. Well, I, it, it, as I started to look, it does seem a little bit like it's a thing because certain counties, unfortunately not Powys and not Shropshire as far as I could see, there's a place in Ireland where they've done a really in-depth study of field names wow. in, a, in a certain area. Um, and then I came across a book um, which I was tempted to buy, but then I thought it was a little bit extravagant because it, um, it was 15 95 in paperback. Um, and the Kindle edition was £18 and 2 p What is it? What is it? What's it's book? called An A to Z of a Thousand and One Field Names and Their Interpretation. 
I, oh. I think that sounds fascinating. It does, and you deserve to own that book. Well, I haven't ruled it out completely, but I realise I wouldn't be able to get it till now, um, in, in time for tonight. Written by a guy called Peter Spackman. So not an awful lot, you know, you can't even look look in. But it says, you know, how did the field, what is a field name? How does it get it name, its name? Why was it named? When was it named? Has it changed? All of those things. Um, and it was actually, somebody had written a review. wouldn't normally be in favour of this review because this is somebody who clearly knows an awful lot about fields. Um, <laughs> and field names. I'm trying to work out whether this is a person I want to meet at a party or not. Well, probably not. But he did write a very detailed review okay. of the book. And in it, um, he, he talks about this book is actually um, an updated version of another book called um, English Field Names, A Dictionary, published in 1972, written by a guy called John Field. <laughs> no. Absolutely. Um, so basically what this guy's saying is that he's not really taken advantage of it all. But he, he goes on... Um, and talks about how you'd need to go back to royal writs, um, roles at manor courts to see who had owned fields, what was the um, what was the um, the ownership. You know, in the days when we had strip farming. Yeah. You know, so it it really is quite a detailed and complicated thing. But he goes on to talk about somewhere down this nine mile long um, uh, review. <laughs> it is literally, it just goes on and on and on. Um, he was talking about how um, there would be there would be farms that would be uh, fields that would be near to the farmhouse, and they would tend to have a certain name. Um, so it wouldn't always be the name of the landlord necessarily. But but locally, and going back to what you were saying, there are varieties in local areas. He was talking about in Yorkshire, um, the word boggart might mean goblin, but if you use that same word in Hertfordshire, it could be a type of scarecrow, which then might connect it to a type of farming rather than land ownership and the type of farming that might have been done. So... Uh, we all know about fallow field, don't we? You know, the, the field that they leave fallow. But then why why does a field end up being called fallow field if it's just an occasional fallow field? Yeah, because it's... You rotate the fallow exactly. field, don't you? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so then I'm thinking of fallow field in Manchester, yes. Why is it called fallow field? Yeah, exactly. So, and then... If, the, you're not answering things here. No, no. We just have more questions, I, don't we? So it's probably why I will need to, to buy the book. But... I I've not I knew that my family mentioned these strange names. There's a place near where my uncle lives which is called Beggar's Bush. And the whole reason the conversation started was as I was driving over from Knighton, I went through through Beggar's Bush and my uncle could remember the time when a road sign was actually placed there to say that it was called Beggar's Bush. Okay. Because people used to refer to it as Beggar's Bush, but they never put a road sign there and then they got one put there and I was sort of romantically thinking as I was driving over why would it be called beggar's bush was it a bush Did that a beggar lived there? in yeah. 
Was it somewhere where they would leave food for beggars, sort of out of mm. the immediate community? And that's how this conversation all came apart. And was there an answer to that? He, no, he didn't know. Oh, my God. No. It's so all questions. It is all questions, yeah. But I've never really thought about it, but it seems that if you want to find out about this stuff, not only is there this book that's got a 1,001 field names, but there are lots of projects in different counties where people have done loads and loads of work looking back at land registry or the the old equivalent of land registry, looking at ownership of, of lands to see where the name has come from. Uh, and I, I think it's... When people do things like that, it's a huge amount of work, but then people like us just get to benefit from it. Yeah. You know, these thousand and one names, well, somebody must have captured who the thousand, what the thousand and one names were. Well, I think that's fascinating. I, I also like old maps as well, and the, the National Library of Wales has got a service whereby you can find an old map from where you live or from anywhere, yeah. and you can overlay a current map. On it. Oh. So I found out that where I live at the moment used to be a turnip field. Oh, wow. Well, I wonder what the field was called. Was it called f- turnip field or was it called five acre field? Um, so I don't know. There was no name on it, but it was the name of the landowner and the person who rented it and it said turnip field. So I'm guessing it was just known as turnip field. Brilliant. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's really good. You've got an old house. You should be able to see your house on old maps, shouldn't you? Well, it wasn't a house when it was built. It was built in eighteen ninety, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't built as a house. But and there are actually there's a group that posts old photos of Gaboin on Facebook, and I'm always hoping this one of yours. That, then one day, because our road was the old old road, yeah. So that was the road to Hollyhead. How do you know that? Is that because your street is called? Old Church Road. Yeah, well, because it, well, yeah, there's Old Church Road, there's Church Road, and now there's the bypass. So, um, but whether Old Church Road um, has always had that path, you know, the exact path that it's got now, I don't know. But when you look at pictures of the cross at Gaboin, um, when there are like people just stood in the road, like women in long dresses, um, you can... There's no level See crossing. Your street in the yeah, there's distance. no roundabout. You know, it's just like a, a field. It was just like a cross. You know, it's just like a place where people come. So, um, but I'm quite interested in that. Obviously, it's Wales, isn't it? You yeah. know, you're in Wales. Maybe there's an English version. Yeah. I might check. Or maybe because you're on the border. Yeah, it's we are right. Yeah, just yeah, maybe edges into the bowing. But imagine the things that we're talking about here. Um, the those maps exist. Yeah. Well, Google Earth. You know, what? Well, we're probably at a time now where youngsters just take it for example for granted that you can just zoom in and look yeah. at. There was there were cars driving around and there were aeroplanes driving around and there were just yeah street view. You've only got street view if somebody's driven a camera down that street, and yet it's just part of our. Yeah, it's accepted, isn't it? Yeah. I do sometimes wonder, and this is a little diversion from what we're talking about, but sort of related, is that, you know, everything's all digital now, so I I often wonder about the photographs. Yeah. And 
but it's the same with maps, isn't it? So if we don't print any photographs and we rely on digital, in thousands of years, hundreds of years, oh, yeah. there'll be no evidence of the photographs we took because even now I can't read a floppy disk or a CD because I haven't got the technology no. to access that. You know, I, I've got hard drives that I can't access anymore because the technology's changed. So move it on a few hundred years. Will it be like this is dark ages? Yeah, like because a lost think, yeah, times. Like we didn't have any record of our life because, you know, everything was digital. Good point. Oh, I look like I, I've. Your eyes that, are wide. Yeah, that is a very good point. <laughs> this is the new dark ages. Because, yeah, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, there are, there are hardly any photos in our house. Printed photos. There's the evidence that you existed. Yeah, there there are no photos of me with my first husband. So maybe exactly you burnt them. Well, no, (laughs) it wasn't quite that, but but yeah, I never thought about that. Maybe we maybe we'll we will be known as the, the 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 time that everybody forgot or. That's an Enid Blyton book, isn't it? Like, the, you know, the singing, ringing <laughs> I'm going with the second Dark Ages. Yeah. You know, and, and the reason why they call it the Dark Ages, the first Dark Ages, is because there's very few records. What was I the reason for that? No, electricity. no, it's because of the lack of records. <laughs> uh, and maybe they had computers, maybe that's a problem. Yeah, maybe they did. <laughs> maybe they did. Maybe they were incredibly advanced. But we've got no evidence of it. Well, you know your playwriting, uh, fiction <laughs> writing. I think you've got a plot there somewhere. <laughs> I've got a premise. I yeah. haven't got a story yet, have I? No. Shall I tell you another thing I learned this Come week? On, it's got then. nothing to do with farms. But, again, my bachelor uncle, when I was a child... Well, he's been a great source of inspiration this week. He has, yeah, because he is interesting. Sorry, can I just ask? Bachelor uncle is often referred to like... The bachelor uncle, as in nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, no, no, he's... Well, he's straight, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, he's just never married. It seems like a euphemism, oh, the bachelor Yeah, no, 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 no. No, he's never married. He's never had a long-term relationship. He lived with my grandparents, and then they lived with him. Yeah. Um, But when we were kids, we used to go and stay with them up in a cottage where they had no running water. Um, I think I might have mentioned it before. Anyway, my uncle told me this week that... um, in the hot summer of 1976, I was staying with my grandparents and my grandfather, it was so hot and dry that my grandfather sent me home to my parents because he was afraid that the house was going to burn down. Oh, my word. And he didn't want me to be you were there. were a refugee. I, well, I was, well... I, in reverse. In the other way, yeah. And I don't think it was because he was sick of me. I think he, my uncle says he genuinely... He didn't want me there because he was convinced the house was going to burn down. Wow. Isn't that a nice thing to have done and I didn't know about it? It's very interesting. Well, because my grandfather had no emotion at all. So the idea that he would have been... He's probably thinking too much admin involved. (laughs) I don't have to account for this. (laughs) And there was me thinking it was because he cared for me. I'm sure he did. Here's a thing that's very relevant to both you and I. Uh, my good friend, um, 
who you know, Dawn, sent me a video, and I think I might have shared it with you, but I shall remind you. Um, it's a lady, it's, it's a comedy video, lady trying on a dress, very nice black dress, and her friends are looking at her and go, hmm, just need a necklace with that or, or something. And this woman bursts into tears and goes, oh no, I've reached the statement jewellery age. <laughs> <laughs> and the friends are like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. it doesn't have to be jewellery, it could be glasses. Oh. <laughs> and both me, you and Dawn, we, we uh, wear statement glasses <laughs> and statement jewellery and statement scarves. It does make me laugh so much. Like, okay, yeah. I'm not sure. I think I, I've worn statement pieces for a long time. I think, yeah, I think I have. I might be ramping it up at the moment, maybe, but that's largely to do with the availability of statement pieces. Yeah. Rather than... Uh... And also, it's actually quite economical because you can pretty much wear the same thing... With, like for weeks without washing it, and then just wear different jewellery and different well, People smell you coming. So I thought I'd look up statement jewellery. Okay. It's not just for us middle aged ladies who. Well, the other thing, so there's two strands that went off. One was about the history of statement jewellery, the other one was are we wearing the statement jewellery to avoid being invisible? And I thought, well, no, actually, I've been wearing statement stuff for a little while, but maybe because it does appear to be a superpower that you earn as you get older as a woman, the invisibility factor. And I seem to remember being younger and you talk about, oh, superpowers, oh, it'd be amazing to be invisible. Mm. Hello. (laughs) Yes, it's quite easy to be uh, looked over, ignored or or invisible as a middle-aged woman. Yeah. But not um, with these glasses. But not with those glasses, no. But, yeah, I, I see what you mean. But, but there's also that thing that... I mean, I think it's the same with guys. You know, when you're a young... When you're a young woman or you're a young man or a young person, you're programmed to be seeking out a partner. You know, that's what's supposed to be happening. So you, So you want to stand out. You want to be attractive. Then when you are with somebody and you're sort of in that time of life when everybody's pretty much settled down, you do become invisible because you're not available, you're not vulnerable, you're not competition, and then as you get older, you become a target because you you do become frail. vulnerable and you become yeah. frail. So I quite I quite like the invisible bit. Yeah. I, as long and as only well, people also, that know me recognise me, that's fine. The best spies are surely middle-aged women. Because yeah, they never put a cardi on, <laughs> walk around town. Nobody's going to look at you, are they? A beige cardi. She's not a spy. Clearly, <laughs> she's no threat to national security. Little do they know. Yeah, but you're not supposed to disclose that we are actually working for MI6 or MI5 or MI whatever it is nowadays. <laughs> See how I pretended I didn't know. Oh yeah, yeah. So, anyway, history of statement jewellery. Would it surprise you to know that the earliest statement jewellery is traced back to Egyptians, Greeks and Romans? No, because there's all the Tutankhamun stuff. Uh, Used to symbolise wealth status status and religious beliefs. Do you use yours, your glasses and your statement jewellery, bracelets, necklaces, earrings, whatever, to 
symbolise your status, your wealth? Well, I haven't got any wealth, which is why I wear cheap jewellery. Um, no, I don't. Is it an important part of your ceremonial attire? Not ceremonial. It feels... If I haven't, like, I haven't got a ring on this finger today, and that feels a, little, a bit like when you're not wearing a watch. Dressed, yeah. So, yeah, there is something. It's not ceremonial, but okay. there is something. So, during the Middle Ages, we moved on a few years, um, it was still a symbol of wealth and power, with large, ornate pieces being worn by the noble class. So, it's about status and power mm. again. I mean, you may protest that this isn't a power play by you with your glasses and your rings, but I don't know. It's looking a bit dodged now. <laughs> Am I shallow? Is that what it is? Are you trying to tell me I'm shallow? During the Renaissance, it became more artistic and intricate, okay, with the increased focus on beauty and design during that period. Uh, the advent of the Industrial Revolution brought about significant changes to statement jewellery with mass production and new forms um, of necklaces, bracelets and earrings becoming increasingly popular. Um, the Art Deco movement focused mm. on geometric shapes. 60s and 70s moving to organic and natural designs. And um, I think today we've got a real mixture, haven't we? So me and you tend to go for more like the costume jewellery type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think there's that much gold and silver. No, no. Jewels? Do you have gemstones? I, I have a gold bracelet here that's got diamonds in it. Oh. I've got one at home that I don't wear because the clasp needs fixing and I've always got a gold chain with my initial on it, which I always wear. But, yeah, the rest of the time it's... Uh, my wedding ring, obviously, it's um, costume jewellery. Mm. Because, um, you know how I like things to be matchy-matchy? Uh, it's... The cheaper it is, the easier it would I like to have, you know, a, a, a lovely dark blue ring, uh, you know, with a beautiful stone in it, or, and then an emerald one, and then a ruby one. And then so a... you can change the colour. So. Yes, yeah. So money's would a I... limiting factor. Yeah, okay. I think so. But also, it's a, it's a bit obscene, isn't it, really? Did you know Coco Chanel is often credited with popularising the concept of costume jewellery? And she mixed uh, real and imitation stones and pearls. Uh-huh. A lady called Vivian Becker um, talks about the cocktail style. Do you know about the cocktail style? She's written a book called Fabulous Costume Jewellery, The History of Fantasy and Fashion in Jewels. Cocktail style? Mm, bubbling and extravagant like the alcoholic concoctions from which it took its name. It was assertive, bossy jewellery to show off in. Wow. Do you fancy some cocktail jewellery? I don't know. What do you have to wear with it? Because I was thinking cocktail dresses. When you said cocktail jewellery, I was thinking cocktail dresses. And so it was popular during the 30s and 40s. Right. Big jewelled rings, multi-strand pearl necklaces, use of gilt, metal and rose gold. Um, the 50s... It was all about the charm bracelet, apparently. And Paco Rabanne, um, we're talking here in the 60s, statement jewellery using cheaper plastics, like plastic and PVC, made jewellery for the alternative side of women's personalities. What does that mean? For their madness. For their madness? Yes. 
Uh, Madeleine Albright, um, do you know her? American politician. I know the name. She wears um, brooches, pins. Okay. Um, the first pin she wore uh, to send an international political message um, was a gold snake wrapped around a branch, which she wore after, be after being referred to as an unparalleled serpent by the Iraqi press. I think that's one thing that the late Queen used to do. She wore brooches and there would often be... A message. Because of the... Because of the I don't think she had a lot of costume jewellery. I think everything was pretty dob on. Yeah. Um, and then there'll be a story... I think she could have a ruby ring, an emerald ring, a sapphire Absolutely. ring. Absolutely. Yeah. And they had jewellery reworked, didn't they? So, you know, there might have been something that was a brooch and it'd be made into a necklace or a necklace that was made into a brooch and... So there is all of that sort of history around things. Mm. I've got a couple of pieces that belong to my grandmother, but they're like paste, but they're just like it's an awful brooch that was made that my dad bought for her that was made out of like pottery. It's like a little yellow flower. And then I used to love it when I was younger, but it's like it's sort of it looks like it's lots of diamonds, but they're not, it's just paste. Mm. But they're, they're quite, you know, they're old. Yeah. But it's old costume jewellery. And I think that's where I get it from because my gran used to be very matchy-matchy and she would always have necklaces that matched. She'd always wear earrings, necklace that matched her outfit. Very nice. Yeah. I don't have any hand-me-down jewellery at all. Oh, it's and not jewellery jewellery. I don't really jewelry, have anything to hand on to my children. You've got your wedding ring. Um, I don't know. See, really? Need to need Make to mention it to your glasses. <laughs> mention it to your husband. You need uh, to start buying me um, jewelry to leave to my children. Yeah. Good luck with that. Now here's the thing: is a Jones and Noble production brought to you every week. Well, maybe not every week ever. <laughs> Recorded with an iPhone, a microphone and lots of hot air.